HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Feeling a little under the weather today. Um, we're going to be talking about fish today, though. We're going to talk about aquaculture. Um, most of the fish that we sell in our supermarkets in this country come from farms. And uh, lots of people, well, there's a lot of misinformation, I think, floating around about farmed fish. And uh, so to the end of clearing all of that up. I have on the phone with me today uh, Scott Nichols, who is the director of Velasso, Verlasso, a provider of salmon raised in harmony with the natural environment. Scott, I love that. Uh, Scott Nichols is responsible for um, NGO engagement and participated in the World Wildlife Federation Salmon Aquaculture Dialogue for several years. He works with environmental and sustainability leaders to discover ways to evolve aquaculture to meet the ever-growing demand for fish while preserving ocean ecosystems and biodiversity. Previously, Scott worked extensively on biodiversity projects in Africa and South America, giving him a deep appreciation for developing comprehensive approaches to sustainable food production. Scott's education includes a PhD. He blogs at verlasso.com, and he can be found on Twitter at @fishinharmony. And I know that sounded just like a dating game um, thing, but anyway, it's kind of a date. We have a date. And our other guest is uh, Tim Fitzgerald. Tim, uh, who has been on the program several times over the last five years, Tim uh, currently manages the Environmental Defense Fund's sustainable seafood program and specializes in the intersection of environmental sustainability and public health. He was a co-creator of the EcoFish Seafood Safe program and is an advisor to SeaWeb's Kids Safe Seafood Campaign and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission's Coastal Sharks Board. Sorry, say that three times fast. Tim is also a senior member of, of Environmental Defense Fund's national policy team advocating for more, um, hmm, well, whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Somehow my, my printer apparently just gave out in the middle there. Um, but anyway, so we are going to be talking aquaculture. Thank you both gentlemen for being on the show with me today. I think we're going to have a good time. It's Tim, wonderful to be with you, Katie. Oh, Scott, you're so nice to say that. And uh, so, Tim, actually, why don't you kick off the program by giving us, because I know you worked in aquaculture for a long time for the EDF, uh, why don't you give us a little thumbnail history of um, 
aquaculture in this country and other countries and sort of uh, the, the challenges and the successes. Yeah, thanks, Katie. It's great to be back with you again. Yeah. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, yeah, so uh, as, as most people know, we, um, we're no longer getting a majority of our fish from uh, wild fisheries in the ocean anymore, and aquaculture has been one of the fastest-growing food industries uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, and, and part of that is because of declining fish stocks in the ocean, but uh, part of it is that just around the world more people are demanding fish to eat, and uh, fish farms have sprung up to meet that demand. Um, in the U.S., most of the farm fish we eat is uh, farmed in other countries, and so we're a very large importer of farmed fish. A lot of that comes from uh, places like Asia and uh, Central America. We do have an aquaculture industry here in the U.S. It's largely uh, either inland or nearshore farms for things like freshwater catfish uh, or for shellfish like oysters and clams and mussels and things of that sort. There's a very small farm salmon industry in the U.S., but compared to other countries like Canada and Chile and Norway, it's it's pretty tiny. So uh, that gives you a sense of where farmed fish is being grown around the world and where we get it to eat here in the U.S. And, Scott, you grow your fish in Chile, right? Yes, we do. And why did you make that decision? Uh, there are a couple of places in the world where um, the conditions are appropriate for growing salmon and the water temperatures and the water in Chile um, are, are really um, superb for salmon as a species. And we found uh, partners there and began our business in southern Chile. Because it was already a viable business down there, I suppose. So a lot of the infrastructure was available to you. Is that why? All of the infrastructure was mm-hmm. available. Uh, of the countries that Tim just mentioned, Norway is the largest producer mm-hmm. of farm salmon in the world, and Chile is the second. Mm-hmm. And I think Scotland is a quick is a close third there, probably because I know they do a lot of fish farming as well, salmon farming. Anyway, um, so what are the challenges to making aquaculture successful, and why does it in general have such a sort of bad reputation? At least in my world it has a bad reputation and part of that is because it is a largely unregulated and un um sort of invisible business in a way um but part of it is i don't know just reputation what what do you think is going on there i think that um it's a new business the large-scale farming of fish Mm -hmm. and it's something with salmon that really began just in the late 1970s in uh, in Norway began in the early 1980s, mid-1980s in Chile. And I think that uh, through time, the salmon industry has learned its way through a lot of challenges and has been able to advance very rapidly. And perhaps there are things that were deserving of poor reputations in the past. And I would say that many of those things are being addressed as people are looking at what the practices ought to be for the future mm-hmm. and considering very carefully what is it that we need to do to ensure that we'll be able to have salmon in generations, not just for 10 or 20 or 30 years. Well, I think the biggest issue with salmon farming or fin fish farming in general is that uh, it has required a lot of fish um, per salmon to grow the salmon. Isn't that right? I mean, because fish basically live on other fish, and salmon being a particular example of that. And so um, it's been difficult to find other sources of nutrition for them. Isn't that the primary issue with farming salmon, is that it, it uses up too much you know, other fish? 
I think that's certainly the biggest issue that faces salmon. Mm-hmm. Salmon, like humans, have to get their omega-3s from their diets. They don't make them themselves. Right. And the way that they get them then is from um, grinding up other small fish, such as anchovies, herring, manhattan, and caplin, and others, and rendering them into fish oil and fish meal. Those fish oils contain the omega-3s, and that's the reason those have been fed to salmon. Historically, it takes about four or so pounds of three to four pounds of the wild-caught fish to provide the fish oil necessary to raise a, a pound of salmon. And I think uh, without a doubt, that's the biggest challenge that mm-hmm. faces salmon aquaculture. That definitely seems like an unsustainable equation. Tim, do you want to weigh in on that? Like, how, yeah, do, I think how the, do you fix the, that? <laughs> the, the reputational issue you, you mentioned before, I think some of it is, some of it is deserved and, and some of it is probably just, um, you know, people take on faith. The, there have been fish farms in other parts of the world for hundreds if not thousands of years. I think it's just recently in the last uh, 20 to 30 where it's really gone to more of an industrial and export scale that, that some of these environmental um, challenges of farming lots of fish in short periods of time have, have started to crop up. And you know, I think one of the unique things about uh, Scott's effort in Chile is that they've, they've taken one of the biggest ones head-on. Salmon is for the most part, raised to be sold to countries like the U.S. and Canada and, and Europe um, for that type of consumption. And so um, when, you're, when you're talking about a net loss of protein from the ocean, the fact that it's a technological challenge that can be reversed, it's, it's pretty exciting and, and hopefully um, gets farmed salmon or at least the better producers on the track to being thought of as um, more sustainable. Yeah, so Scott, why don't you tell us what, what do you do at Verlasso that's different from uh, traditional farmed salmon? Because you, you have developed a different diet, right? Right. And uh, like I said a moment ago, I think that the diet problem is an existential problem for salmon aquaculture. And um, the fish have to have... I love that you said existential. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't resist that. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Started out college as a French major and studied existentialist literature. <laughs> so, um, okay, now I've lost myself. We, um, the, the problem with salmon diets, again, is, is getting the omega-3s. And the fish um, absolutely have to have the omega-3s. This is not an optional thing for them. There are a variety of biological reasons that they must have them. So what we do is um, we grow uh, yeast that makes the essential omega-3s, and we use that yeast as part of the fish's diet. And in that way, the fish continue to get the omega-3s that they need, but instead of using three to four pounds of wild fish to uh, raise a pound of salmon, we're using about one pound of wild fish to raise a pound of salmon, just perhaps a, a, a wee titch less than that. And I think that addresses one of what I think the key needs is mm-hmm. for aquaculture, and that is that aquaculture has to re, um, result in the net production of fish. Uh, if aquaculture is a net consumer of fish in the ocean, then it's, it's not serving our needs on, in any number of different ways. 
Absolutely. Um, one of the biggest problems with uh, with salmon farming or any fish farming, I suppose, in general, is um, is fecal engineering. And I, I happen to read quite a few. <laughs> I, I don't know why I go into this. But anyway, but it is like the biggest issue. Um, and one of the things that people are most worried about, I think, when they eat farmed fish uh, of any type, whether it's shrimp or fin fish, um, is that they feel like the animals, you know, the fish are living in these sort of big buckets full of fish shit and it's kind of disturbing and alarming and i i certainly read in in a couple of the papers when i was doing the research for this show that that is like the number one issue in terms of farming fish and that's that's another technological issue that has to be resolved um before i think fish farming can really take off can you guys comment on how you manage that kind of challenge what we i can i can probably speak to the 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 issue and the challenge, and then maybe hand it back over to Scott for how, how do we fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of farms, especially in uh, developing nations around the world, are essentially just holes in the ground filled with water that shrimp or catfish or other things are farmed in. And uh, the less the less care that's taken in tending those ponds and farms, the the worse the conditions become. And then you get into a series of uh, cascading fixes for that problem that just create more problems. So if the if the water is dirty or there is a pathogen in the in the in the water, then you, you treat it with a chemical or an antibiotic mm-hmm. and then um, that creates issues of resistance or residues in the in the seafood that make them unsafe and so you have to take steps to uh, deal with those. And so um, really the the sanitary conditions of a farm and the proactive steps that you can take to keep it strong and healthy are really critical, but in a lot of places where regulations or enforcement or uh, other kinds of oversight don't exist, um, that's that's one of the corners that get cut to make farmed fish grow faster and cheaper to get to market sooner. So um, it's definitely an issue, uh, probably not as much in this country, uh, definitely in some of the some of the Asian big aquaculture industries, I would say that's still very much an issue. And and before I let Scott comment on that, I, I just want to sort of clarify, because I thought that most um, finfish farming, like salmon farming, took place not uh, in inland, but actually just offshore in pens. Is that incorrect? No, salmon is, is kind of an interesting uh, caveat to a lot of the finfish farming. It's one of the few types of farmed fish that's, that's grown mostly in developed countries. So mm-hmm. Like we said before, Canada, Chile, um, Norway, the EU, etc. Most other types of fin fish, like tilapia, for example, um, or a number of other kinds, uh, those are those you tend to find in, in places more like Asia and Central America. But but salmon is you're right. It's um, it's in countries that we're more familiar with. And it, and it's grown offshore. It's not grown in pens on land. It's, it's not- grown in pens, but they're floating in the ocean. Yeah, right. That's what I'm getting at. Within, you know, within a mile or two of shore, probably. And then, Tim, I wondered, like, what impact, when you have a big concentration of fish like that, and they're, you know, pumping out all of this waste, what impact does that have on uh, the sort of surrounding environment and the fish that live in that area? Do they, you know, does that have an impact on their health? Does it have an impact on ocean health? What, I mean, what's what's the fallout for that? Or is there none? Just because of the currents and the way ocean moves? Uh, yeah, I would say on average that if you have a high concentration of fish in a small area and 
they're being fed multiple times a day and, and their, their waste is just going directly into the water, you can have very significant impacts not only on the bottom underneath the cages because uh, they're, they're not usually grown in that deep of water. Uh-huh. Um, so there's lots of studies on what happens to the bottom underneath uh, fish cages when there, there aren't proper currents or there, you know, there aren't uh, measures to control for that. And then there's also the issue of um, if there is a disease or a parasite or something that gets into the farm, that that can then spread to the wild fish in the, in the area of that farm. So... Again, in just your average operation where they're, they're just trying to grow as much fish protein as quickly and cheaply as possible, these can be real issues. Absolutely. Um, there are companies and farms that are, that are engaging better practices to deal with these, and um, I think that's where some of the things that Scott and Verlasso are doing are, are exciting, you know, not just because of their company and their product, but for the potential to show the rest of the industry that's you can grow salmon responsibly and continue to improve and um, have a profitable business at the same time. So, Scott, are you being are you being uh, called to to give uh, guidance to other fish farms uh, in other countries? I mean, first of all, let's let's get to what you do that's different from regular fish farming, and then are you becoming a mentor to other countries in in the sense of solving some of those problems that Tim just described? Okay, well, in, in the order that you said, Katie, I think the, the thing that we realize, of course, is that all, all agriculture has environmental effects. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is we need to recognize them and understand them and manage them so that what we do is um, we have a minimal effect on the environment and what we try to do is correct um, what it is what effects we have so that aquaculture, in our case, continues to be practiced again for generations to come, not just for years to come. Right. One of the things that we do is we try to manage the amount of fish that we have in an area. So we raise our fish at a lower pen density than others. We raise our fish at a density of, of not to exceed 12 kilograms of fish per ton of water. And... Um, that contrasts to uh, a lot of international norms are about 25 kilos right. uh, per ton of water. And we don't, by, by lowering the amount of fish we have in a pen, we don't double the number of pens. What we're really trying to do is lower our environmental load. Um, with respect to um, what comes out of the farms, one of the things we try to manage very carefully is that there's no wasted feed. So we have, in all of our uh, pens, we have cameras that are about two meters under the surface of the water, and the person who's in charge of feeding those fish is not standing at the dock, but is standing at a computer looking at the, uh, the, the camera monitor to make sure that no fish is, excuse me, no feed is going through where the fish are and, and falling through the pen. That's a very important thing. Wow, interesting. Uh, then we also pay attention to our sighting. So as Tim said, uh, the depth of the water is going to matter quite a bit. And what we want to do is we want to sight our farms in deep water uh, with rapid currents. Um, there's a, a, a fine line to be walked there. You want to have a rapid enough current that you get mixing of the water, but not so rapid of a current that um, it will tend to pull the farm. 
And then the other thing that we do is we fallow our farms on average six months after they're harvested. And before going back into a site with fish and a new cycle of farming, we do a series of monitors of the ocean surface. We look, we monitor um, for uh, any chemical changes and bacterial changes that might indicate that some greater fallowing time is necessary. And in that way, what we hope to do is to be able to minimize our impact on the environment while we're still producing our fish. Scott, how'd you figure all this out? Like the new, the yeast thing, how'd you figure that out? And, and how come you're the only one? Um, I think others are probably thinking about this too. Um, we approached our business perhaps a little bit differently than others do. And, and we founded the business to provide a sustainable answer and an environmental solution. Because that was how we structured ourselves and our thinking from our very outset, it led us to think about our practices perhaps in different ways than others who had legacy businesses might have thought about them. Mm. Um, And it, it was a matter of really believing that we could create a business that would solve an environmental problem and then also contribute um, really delicious food for us all. Absolutely. I mean, I've tried your salmon. It's excellent. No question about that. I was really impressed. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Let's do a little advertorial right now for (laughs) Verlasso. I never try to eat it more than two times a day myself. Yeah, right. I can imagine. <laughs> well, I remember when we talked about it in Charleston, you told me that you have kind of an interesting, um, like you really sort of grow to order almost. Is that right? <clears throat> we, yes. And so what we do is um, we are, as we increase our business, what we try to do is to manage very carefully um, the increased demand for our fish and the amount that we're farming. We're a new business. We just sold our first fish in September of 2011. Mm-hmm. And so as we grow, we need to keep in mind um, just you know, h- how we manage our expansion. Sure, that makes sense. You guys, we should take a short break here, and uh, we'll be right back with Tim Fitzgerald from the Environmental Defense Fund and Scott Nichols from Verlasso. Um, we'll be talking more about aquaculture. Stay with us. Today's break music is from a band called Hard Bodies, and this is What Doesn't Kill You on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. 
And this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about aquaculture today and farming salmon and other fin fish. My guests are Tim Fitzgerald from the Environmental Defense Fund and Scott Nichols from Verlasso, which is a salmon-raising uh, outfit uh, based in Chile, but based here. I mean, Scott's here, they're there, but the fish is everywhere. Isn't that right, Scott? <laughs> Our our fish are for sale in the United States only, yeah. Oh, is that right? Well, so anywhere here. Um, You guys, let's go back for a second to something that Tim said earlier about the impact. I'm going to just ignore my outline here. And um, and the impact, because I was really struck by the the parallels with um, animal agriculture in terms of like being aware of what's happening on the bottom of the ocean. So say you have a fish farm and you're feeding, you know, you recognize that there's some biological issue going on. There's, you know, too much fecal matter in the water. There's too much feed. Um, How do you manage for it? And some, I know that some farmed fish uh, is, you know, has the reputation of being fed a lot of antibiotics. Um, How uh, do you mitigate the impact of things like antibiotics in the water that will then, uh, again, affect other animals in the environment? Tim, I think that's your question. I think the key is to to create conditions and siting and and other things at the farm that that keep you from needing to use antibiotics Uh because it's it's one thing if... uh, fish or shrimp or whatever you're trying to grow get sick and you're using the antibiotics to treat a diagnosed condition. Most of, and I think this is the case in agriculture and livestock as well, unfortunately most of the antibiotics that are used uh, in your conventional types of operations are done prophylactically. And that they're just given to the animals that are healthy to make them either grow more quickly or, or process feed more efficiently. So um, if you're if you're practicing humane and good animal welfare husbandry at your farm, you probably don't need a whole lot of antibiotics. And I think Scott can speak to this more than I can. But in Chile, in the salmon industry more broadly, that antibiotic usage is, uh, in addition to the fish usage, one of the one of the biggest challenges facing the industry. So um, I think if if the industry is able to adapt their practices so that they're they're not needed, that's that's really the best way to combat the and issue. And would they use the same antibiotics in fish as they use in animals, which are also used in humans? I mean, you know, I know that that there's that much bandied about number eighty percent, but it actually breaks down to a lot less of those of the of the overlap between human medicine and animal agriculture medicine. Um, is it the same types of antibiotics are used in treating fish for um, you know? whatever illnesses you develop being in a fish farm? Scott? It's a smaller or subset of antibiotics that are mm-hmm. used in fish farming. But, and again, I'm just talking broadly mm-hmm. about aquaculture globally. Right. There, are, there are still a number of the ones that are considered either critical or required or whatever for human medicine that, that do get used in fish farms. So Interesting. Um, it's not like there are just special ones that we don't care about for humans that they use on fish. There are ones that are absolutely important to human medicine that do uh, ultimately get bought and sold to be given to fish and in, in places where there aren't really good controls on what can or can't or shouldn't be sold. Uh, the numbers are pretty staggering. I've done some work in Vietnam and the fish farming industry there, and you, know, you can pretty much buy just about anything you want from traveling salesmen, and you don't need any kind of diagnosis or anything. You can just right. kind of 
decide what you want to buy based on what your neighbor used and whether or not it worked for him or her. Good Lord. Okay, well, that's scary. Um, but we, we, we're we going to move on for, from that because um, that's another entire program. I mean, I'm a little, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the use of antibiotics in livestock, and um, I've done way too many programs about it. Um, so I don't want to bore the crap out of my listeners with more of this doom and gloom stuff. But one Leave thing, that to me, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> Sorry, you guys. One thing that struck me when I was reading this is, and again, to talk to go back to the sort of uh, fecal engineering aspect of fish farming. Why aren't um, why aren't they fish farms? And Scott, you can speak to this um, using bivalves like uh, oysters and, and mussels to um, process and filter water. I, mean, I would think that that would be sort of the perfect synergy. Why is? But I, I read that it is not, and in fact, those some of those uh, organisms provide uh, even more problems for fish farmers. So, can you explain why that synergy doesn't doesn't seem to exist anywhere except in my mind? I think that with respect to Chile, the answer is an easy one, and that is national regulations on on the distance um, between farm sites was developed for salmon farms, and it wasn't really uh, considering putting bivalves next to the salmon farms. But because of the requirements for how far farms need to be from each other, the bivalves have to be situated sufficiently distantly from the salmon farms that uh, there is no benefit to them by having the salmon farm um, there. Huh. Cause so I that's mean... a national, uh, matter of national regulation. Right. Now, my understanding is that this is part of a discussion that's beginning again in Chile, and it would be um, it would be great to have that part reconsidered. We don't want the salmon farms any nearer to each other, but to have uh, to have shellfish farms nearby would be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I would think if I were a salmon farmer, I would just introduce, I mean, not necessarily even for human consumption, but much as we have, you know, oystering in New York Harbor to clean the water, and you don't necessarily want to eat those oysters, but they provide this essential service. Tim, why do you think that that's not a more widespread uh, policy to just have them there to clean the water, even if they're not used for human consumption? I know there are a couple of farms and companies that have been uh, trying to take that idea to scale in Atlantic Canada and Maine, again, where there are, there are some salmon farms. Uh, I'm not terribly familiar with the operations, but my, my understanding is that it's very doable. Uh, a lot of what you end up with, you can't actually sell right. to be eaten by people. And so if it's not required, then it's an additional business cost, and you know, companies aren't always dying to take on additional costs if they can't monetize it in some way. Yeah, but it's a pretty minimal cost. I mean, you can buy a lot of clams for not too much money, as I learned when I was writing about shellfish aquaculture a couple of years ago. I mean, you know, this it's not a big cost to lay down an oyster bed. You know, pretty much anybody can get into the business for just a few thousand dollars. But anyway, okay, so you guys... Yeah, and there's, you know, there, there, there's been academic research on this for mm-hmm. five, if not ten years on I how to do it so. so that it works. And from what I understand, there's a pretty replicable model of mussels and kelp that that go pretty well with salmon farms that uh, can mitigate a lot of these uh, nutrient and other types of pollution issues that the farm itself causes. But as as for why it hasn't really caught on within the industry, Scott may know better than I. Mm. Scott, do you have a comment on that? Uh, I, I don't really know for what happens in the other countries. 
what those regulations are. I believe there is a place in Canada that has an integrated farm operating, just as you said, Katie. But um, I, you know, I don't know what the national regulations are in the British Isles, nor in Norway. And I don't know why that's not happening there. Yeah, it seems to me like a really quick and easy fix it for a lot of the problems you guys have just described. So kind of strange that it hasn't been more widely adopted. There must be a good reason that I certainly cannot possibly uh, gather myself. Um, Let me ask you something, you guys. Why is it, uh, Why? I was just curious about this, but why are some fish more adaptable to farming than others in the fin fish category? Like, why aren't we raising, I noticed that there was some mention to bluefin tuna farming, but it's obviously not very widespread. Is it because they're big? Um, why aren't we raising other fish that we all eat, like, for instance, flounder or scrod or cod, for that matter? Like, why don't those animals work well in a fish farming, uh, you know, environment and salmon and tilapia and catfish do? I think that part of it is just how long we've been tinkering around with the, the methods and the breeding of the fish before it's successful. And salmon is probably the the best example of one that's been um, messed around with for probably 30 or 40 years now if you go back to when it started in Norway. Um, so there, there's there been a lot of time to get that process right, and actually there, overall I would say the industry has made a lot of improvements in the last five to ten years. Uh, they still need to do better, but so much energy and effort and, and money has been poured into that industry to, to create the perfect farm salmon that they've They've identified and started to figure out how do you deal with these issues. In the case of bluefin tuna, it's a much younger industry, and I have no doubt that in five or ten years, or I hope that in five or ten years, we won't have to catch wild bluefin tuna to farm them and ranch them and fatten them up for market uh, and further deplete the wild population that they can just grow them from eggs uh, in a closed life cycle in the lab. And that's just starting to happen, but that industry is so much younger than the salmon industry, that it's going to take a good deal of time before they're there. And there are mu- and in the case of cod and snappers and other things, you know, small ventures have tried. There have been cod farms off and on in North America and Europe for a while now, and they just, a lot of it is, you know, they can't raise enough money or they don't have the right technology or the market doesn't want farmed cod versus wild cod at the time that they're growing them. So I think there are very few commercial fish that you probably couldn't grow on a farm, given the right research and time and investment, but um, but for know, whatever just, reason, salmon has been the best, most successfully marketed fish. I mean, essentially, what yeah. we're talking about is marketing, right, Scott? Wouldn't you agree? Well, I think, but Tim's Tim's point was a good one. Um, domesticating an animal is a lot of work. It's mm-hmm. a real chore. And there's a lot that has to go into developing the brood stock breeding lines that are required to ensure that you have genetic diversity in what you're farming and that you actually are able to raise fish efficiently from eggs going forward. And, and I think that's a lot of what drives the economics of being able to do it. And, and I know many are looking, um, particularly like Tim said with cod, also looking at halibut as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it takes an awful lot of work up front to be able to do that. 
And also, uh, one thing I know about fish is that some fish have extraordinarily long life cycles and uh, take a long, long time to mature. And as I'm thinking about this question I just asked you, I realized that that obviously would be a very big part of the equation. I mean, for instance, orange roughy can live to be like 90 years old or something, and they don't start breeding until they're 45. So I guess you have to take into account, right, that the light, the natural life cycle. So a salmon has a shorter lifespan or a shorter maturation process than many other fish. Would that be one element of this that would make a significant impact on whether or not people would invest in that? That is, you can go from egg to harvested fish in about three years with salmon. Uh-huh. That's a very long time. I mean, if you look at livestock ag... I mean, that's as long yes. as a cow. <laughs> you know, that's even longer than a cow. It is. You know? Um, and that's, that's considerably sped up from the natural life cycle, just given all the breeding. Right. Amazing. And, you know, I never thought about the breeding and the genetics. And, of course, we, you know, we focus so carefully on that in, in livestock, animal, animal livestock. Um, but I, I never really thought about it in terms of fish. Um, we're going to wrap yeah, up. Or, in a, you know, a tilapia is probably more on the, the, the order of a chicken. Right. Maybe not two months, but right. uh, you know, you definitely when you're looking at fish to farm, you're you're not going to pick ones like orange roughy or um, no. grouper or rockfish or things that live decades. Yeah, which is just you need an something that's going to return on your investment much more quickly. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to also touch on some of the news since we only have about five minutes left on the show. Um, my brother sent me an article a couple of days ago about uh, a tremendous scallop die-off on the Pacific Northwest, and um, and that apparently is also uh, connected to a, a big oyster die-off. And I wondered if you guys would like to comment on that. Is that the result of radiation from Fukushima or uh, just ocean acidification? Like, what are the environmental impacts that we should be concerned about in terms of um, growing fish in the future. I'm not familiar with those specific events, but I think it's safe to say that the ocean is changing pretty rapidly and Mm -hmm. shellfish are some of the... the first sentinels that were... Right, they'd be like the canary in the coal mine. So it could be acidification, it could be... um, low oxygen zones or algal blooms or a combination of all of them. Mm-hmm. It's probably, I, I probably wouldn't attribute it to Fukushima just because, um, you know, those effects that they're seeing from Fukushima are much closer to Japan, and although they've detected some of the radiation uh, on this side of the Pacific, I wouldn't say that it's causing die-offs or even, even making the fish that we catch on the West Coast unsafe. Oh, that's a good thing um, to hear. <laughs> I'm sure people will be very relieved to hear that. It's certainly <laughs> something that crossed my mind immediately. So far, based on based on what we know, I think that's you know that's kind of the cautious optimism for now. But <laughs> yeah, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of money going into research um, and monitoring in shellfish farms in the Pacific Northwest and mm-hmm. and New England and places like that that are seeing very major changes very rapidly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the the changes in the lobster populations on the north northeast corridor, which is you know where I'm from and what I'm interested in, uh, that's been huge. The way things are changing in the lobster populations, and also the the whole sort of oyster clam scallop, all of those wild populations have changed a lot. Um, so we don't need to talk anymore. We don't need to worry anymore about radiation from um, Pacific Northwest or Pacific fish. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I think we want to make sure that the various state and federal agencies are continuing to look for there to be an issue. Um, 
obviously <laughs> these are not contaminants like mercury or PCBs that we can get rid of in a shorter time span. This is stuff that sticks around for a while, so we want to make sure that we're still looking for this radiation in fish and other things for mm-hmm. a while to come. Mm-hmm. But as of right now, I don't, I don't think we're looking at a major public health issue in terms of our U.S. seafood. Wow. And how about the Japanese? Are they seeing, because that's their primary source of protein is fish, are they seeing a big, um, are they able to eat their own fish? Just out of there, curiosity. There have I'm been a lot of moratoria on, on fishing in the area of the, the reactors. Yeah. Um, but Japan is actually the biggest uh, import-export market for seafood in the world. So they import a huge amount of fish from all over the place. Right. They, they import something like $20 billion worth of seafood a year. And um, so a lot of the fish that they're getting is not local. Right. Scott, go ahead. in this case is actually a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> really. Scott, go ahead. You were going to say something? I was up and around Fukushima is where Japan's coho salmon farms were. Those farms were obliterated mm. during the tsunami itself, but they can't return farms to that area and, and begin to raise fish there again uh, because of the contamination that's come from Fukushima. And I think it's continuing to leak, isn't it? Isn't it continuing to leak into the water? That's what I've heard. But, you know, I could definitely be wrong about that. Um you guys, I guess we should wrap it up here. We only have a minute to go. So why don't you tell me what you want to promote? <laughs> Scott, what's your website so people know where they can get Verlasso salmon? Our website is verlasso.com, and uh, a, there's a, a lot of articles there about many of the things that we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess if I were going to promote anything, I would say that um, when you think about the healthiest and most sustainable thing that you can put on your plate, whether it's a verlosso salmon or another, I'm not really being particular here, but it takes us about 1.2 to 1.5 total kilos of feed to raise a a kilo of fish. And when you contrast that with uh, terrestrial animal agriculture, when you think of perhaps the best thing that you can put on your plate from a uh, uh, conservation of resources issue, it's likely to be a fish. Thank you. It's a good thing to point out. And Tim, anything about what you're working on? People can go look at the EDF website for your particular, you're working on some interesting new projects right now. I know that. Yeah, they can go to uh, seafood.edf.org for a comprehensive guide on sustainable and healthy seafood recommendations. And they can find me on Twitter at Hawaii Fits. Oh, I'm going to be looking for that myself. We we need to tweet. <laughs> you know, if you, if you need four or five tweets on useless fish facts per day, then I'm your guy. That would be me. I need that information. You have no idea. You know what a geek I am about the meat industry, so I'm, I'm just going to add fish to my thing. So, guys, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. This is really informative. I totally appreciate it. Um, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks to my sponsor, and uh, thanks to my engineer, Jack, and... Um, Until next time, stay tuned. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. There's a-